You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm very, very excited about this class. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to partner up with David. David's become a good friend over the past uh, several years. Um, got to see him in the trenches a little bit. And one of the things that I'm especially excited about for our parish and those who are in this class, um, you can't be around David and Brooke and his family without a sense of their real love um, for the city of Birmingham. It just sort of, it, it pulses through him. And I'm hoping that that, you know, that we all kind of catch some of that together as we're, as we go through these next several weeks, um, thinking about this this conversation. I think David and I have spent a lot, I will say, this is a pretty big deal. I've taught at Advent for almost a decade now. First time I've ever had a PowerPoint behind me. So this is, this is big. It's big for me. Um, so, uh, but but we, we were giving some thought to the ways in which we might structure this class from an aerial view um, and recognizing that we have six weeks together. There's a lot that we won't be able to cover. I'm hoping that this begins a conversation that will continue on in our parish life, our common life together. But like David mentioned, we're starting with with the Bible and with Nehemiah, which is one of these fascinating books um, buried in the historical section of the Bible, you know, first and second Samuel, and then Kings, and then Chronicles, and then oftentimes we kind of just Ezra and Nehemiah, those two strange books, and we and we move on. But Ezra and Nehemiah coming together as a kind of twofold um, book really speak to what was going on in the middle of the ruins of a city that had come undone. Um, And so the first question that I want to raise for us this morning with Nehemiah is how in the world, I mean, what what are the mechanisms that will allow us to move from a book like Nehemiah um, into our setting here in, in Birmingham? Because if you're sort of thinking critically about this, as I probably would if I were sitting where you are, now you're going to see that there are, some, there are some major points of discontinuity between Jerusalem and Mount Zion and Birmingham. I mean, I know we all love Birmingham, but you know, it's the, the, the new heavens and the new earth are not called the new Birmingham, it's the new Jerusalem. So we, we know that there are some distinctions that are going on here. And yet at the same time, there's, a, there's, a, there's an instinct within the history of the church to look at narratives of the Bible and to find within narratives of the Bible moral instruction, guidance, wisdom for how we might naturally extend what's going on in that moment into our own moment. Um, Calvin, for example, does this with Jeremiah the prophet. Um, we, none of us are prophets like Jeremiah. He was in a very unique setting. But Calvin would allow Jeremiah's call to become a lens for how ministers today ought to function. And we're going to engage the book of Nehemiah, recognizing that there is discontinuity between Nehemiah and his world on multiple levels, but that there are some significant principles that we might be able to pick up from Nehemiah that might provide for us a little bit, some, some handles, uh, a framework by which we might think about our own city, and a term that I, I, I can't escape this term, um, the providence of our place. I mean, Advent's been here for a very long time, and we have a providence of God placing us at this particular place in our city, knowing that most of us are kind of traveling to this place, going back to wherever you live, whether it's over the mountain or Mountain Brook or whatever. Um, so we're thinking here about our, the providence of our place. Now let me say just a little bit about Nehemiah, because I, I, I want David to have, David's got a lot to share today. 
Nehemiah was is an interesting figure. So when you think about what were the global circumstances that led to this book, um, it's fascinating because Nehemiah is a cupbearer, which was a significant political position. So just think about this. It was if someone was trying to poison the king of Persia or to take him out, which is, was a common thing in the ancient Near Eastern world, really the person that stood between the king and his life was his cupbearer. So this is a very significant position of authority and influence, and, and one might even say power that Nehemiah has because the trust of the king had to be placed completely on Nehemiah, and their position's a fascinating one. So you think about Israel, pre-exile, um, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Then the Assyrians come in in the, in the 8th century BC, wreak havoc on the northern kingdom. They're done. Invade the southern kingdom. They're loaded with problems now. Their infrastructure is broken. Eventually, the, the Babylonians come along. They overthrow the Assyrians. The Babylonians come in. They do away with, Babylon, with, uh, with Jerusalem and Judah bringing the exile onto bear. And this is the moment, this is the backdrop of Nehemiah's entire ministry, is the, is the, is the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, which, which left their infrastructure broken. I mean, the, the image I keep having that comes to my mind is Charlton Heston, you know, in Planet of the Apes, you know, walking down the beach and seeing the Statue of Liberty there buried in the sand. That's the scene that you have in Jerusalem now um, that the best of the best have been exiled out of the land and the infrastructure of the city had been left in ruins. Its temple was destroyed. I mean, think about our Capitol building or something that would gather our whole worldview together as Americans. That had been destroyed. The walls, their protection had been, had been destroyed as well. And there was, there was really a ragtag group of people that were left behind needing organization and leadership and this is when, um, and after the Babylonians are on the scene, and they're, by the way, just a blip on the screen historically, the Persians come onto the scene, and they have mass domination for a couple of hundred years. And the Persians had a very different policy, when you think of from the same of foreign policy, than the Babylonians did. When the Babylonians conquered a people, they required that people to, to absorb all of their cultural and religious identity. That's why uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had those names in Babylon because they had to take on Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. He had to take on a Babylonian name. So it was complete cultural assimilation is what happened um, with, uh, with Babylon. The Persians and the king of Persia, the various kings, had a very different foreign policy. They released people back into their cultures and encouraged them to actually live out their governmental and religious particularity. They didn't, uh, never, not everyone had to, to sort of absorb themselves within Persian religion and politics. They were all underneath the authority of Persia, but there was a release back into various communities so that people um, could follow their own God and, and accord themselves with their own religion. This is the reason, by the way, that Isaiah the prophet calls Cyrus, the king of Persia, are you ready for this? Isaiah 45, a messiah. He's a, mess a messianic figure because he releases the people back in. So here's Nehemiah, a part of the really the elite left behind in, in Persia. He's a member now of the royal court. And this is the part that I want to leave you with this morning. Um, and then we'll, we'll come back to visit this again next week. 
Nehemiah hears a report of what's going on in Jerusalem. It's disarray, the brokenness of its walls, the breakdown of its religious and political order. Everything is in shambles. And when Nehemiah gets this report in Nehemiah chapter 1, he finds himself grieved to the point where he cannot control how he looks in front of the most powerful man in the world. And, and we're going to talk a lot about this over the next few weeks. What's the first thing that Nehemiah does? Nehemiah falls on his knees and he prays. And what you see from this first chapter of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's overwhelming heart for his city. And I use that term um, intentionally because that's one of our goalposts here at the Advent. We have a heart for the gospel. We have a heart for those disaffected by the church. And the last thing that we say, at least in our mission statement, is the Advent um, Episcopal Church has a heart for the city. Um, Nehemiah demonstrates that in Nehemiah chapter 1. Deep angst, deep concern, driving him to prayer for the city that he knows and that he loves. And this is what happens, right? The king sees him downcast before him and says, and this is a Genelette paraphrase, uh, why are you looking so down today, Nehemiah? Which, if you read the text carefully, it says, and Nehemiah feared at that moment because he's in a precarious position. But the trust that had been built up between him and the king was such that once he tells the king why he's heartbroken over his city, the king releases him to go to the city and to, and to give his efforts, his organizational leadership efforts, to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and bringing it back to the place of its former glory. So a heart for the, so a heart for the city. Next week, and I, I want to do this today, but I, I want to give David his time. Next week, we're going to turn and, and look pretty hard at the fact that when Nehemiah arrives in the city, the first thing that he does is open his ears, open his eyes, and he shuts his mouth. <laughs> but he doesn't come in with a game plan. He comes in to observe, actually under the cover of night. He goes around, he observes, he sees what's going on with the city wall. He seeks to understand his place in the city and the needs of the city before he then begins to move toward action. So with that, back to you, David. So I, I was a history major at Sanford, which means I, I do love history a lot. Um, and I uh, know that uh, history, um, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, if you look at it, a lot, of, a lot less history majors recently than there were back in my day, which is sad. But yet, history right now is one of the most debated, hotly debated subjects I think you'll find. Whose history are we talking about? Who, who's not been, have, had their history told? All that kind of thing. And I, I recognize that um, uh, when I love studying history, really, I love the good, the bad, and the ugly is what I call it. There is good, there is bad, and there is ugly because it's human history. And, and there's a lot of that and everything. And I think we've got to look at all of it. But at the same time, not dwell on just one or the other. I mean, look a lot of just the good and forget the bad. Or you can look at all the bad and you can not talk about any of the good. And I really want to lay it all out as we kind of walk through Grant's history. The other thing i got to realize too is that um, I think you approach history with humility, honestly, because it is it can be very arrogant for us in our time and in our place look back at what somebody was thinking 150 years ago and, and judge them extremely harshly uh, or 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago. We just don't, we didn't live in their time and we didn't swim in their pond. So um, I, I uh, try to be very humble about it too. 
but um, we've only got about you know 20 minutes uh, left of today, which means I'm going to go very fast. So hang on. We got 150 years. By the way, happy birthday, Birmingham is our 150th year. If you didn't know that already, uh, in December Birmingham will be 150 years old. Um, so um, I. Um, uh, these things are what really made Birmingham happen, right? Uh, this is coal, iron ore, and limestone. Um, prior to Birmingham um, uh, being uh, founded, you know, Jefferson County, this place was relatively insignificant. It was not the sort of powerhouse culturally or economically of the state, but we had a real reason. There was necessity that created Birmingham, and that was that the, the state was having to recover from the Civil War and we needed to have a new way forward to create some jobs and, and to provide some economy and, and, and build some wealth. And um, uh, this was the opportunity. Uh, so necessity combined with opportunity uh, led to then the need for uh, people to sort of see the way forward um, uh, with vision and with ambition. Um, and uh, when necessity and opportunity are combined with vision and ambition, something happens. Uh, it was people like this that had the ambition, uh, many of these founders of the city uh, that knew the opportunity, and let's admit it, they wanted to make money, uh, but they also uh, felt that, that the whole state needed it and, and the, the South needed really an industrial center uh, in it because that was the way of the future. And so these men put together their resources and their vision, ambition, and, and, and move the mechanisms that they could move in order to uh, put railroad tracks, you know, railroads through here that uh, would allow a city to be born. And, um, but it can't just be born because of those men. It was a city that needed people to come from all over the place to actually see this vision happen. Um, those men couldn't go into the mines by themselves and pull everything out, right, and, and, and work the furnaces. And there was opportunity that was open to everyone, whether they were a former slave or a sharecropper that uh, wanted a new opportunity, or people from Europe uh, who were experiencing either their own versions of oppression or uh, poverty. Um, and they came. And they came from all over the world uh, to Birmingham, uh, from the Middle East, everywhere. And uh, they, you can see they brought their own religion, uh, they brought their own practices, their own food. A lot of that was sort of mashed together here in Birmingham uh, from 1871 forward. Um, and um, so a city was laid out. The uh, vision for this great city that was going to be called Birmingham, named after the greatest industrial city of the world at the time, Birmingham in the, in the UK. Um, they laid out a modern city with the railroads uh, in the middle, with land reserved to the side of the railroad for industry so that the industrial magnets could, could put their industry on there and get their product on the rail and out of here. Uh, they laid out uh, you know, blocks and uh, with wide roads and they were really thoughtful about building and designing for a city uh, that was modern and, and for the future. And um, they were so ambitious uh, in, their, in, their, um, uh, in these first upstart years of Birmingham uh, that they were really driven to really show off. Uh, and by 1904, when the uh, World's Exhibition in St. Louis was going on, you all know the story of this guy, right? Vulcan uh, was uh, a, a product of the, the local Chamber of Commerce and said, we've got to have the best display possible so everybody looks and sees what Birmingham can do. That was the attitude of that era. And they hired Italian sculptor Giuseppe Moretti to cast the tallest cast iron statue in the world 
and they sent him to St. Louis and he won the prize. And everybody, the seven million people from around the world that came to St. Louis during that time saw Vulcan and heard about Birmingham. That was the kind of promotion that our founding fathers and uh, were all about. Um, and it, it grew so fast that it was dubbed the Magic City. Now it was not a city that didn't have its troubles. It, was, uh, it nearly died several times uh, between now and the time Vulcan was standing up there, between financial panics, a couple of fina national financial panics that dried up investment, you had a cholera epidemic, you had all this stuff that could have taken the city out. But it stayed and it kept going. As we get to the end of this era, I want to sort of speak to two or three things because every one of these areas I want to talk to, it's not just I want you to have wisdom and knowledge about things that happened along the way. I want us to think about what are those things that happened that begin to build the kind of people and community and city we are. Where are those seeds that maybe got planted because of something that happened 100 years ago that we really still live with today as we're thinking about our city and our community. And so three things as we sort of move to the end of this upstart era where the city was really blowing and going and trying to be the, great, the greatest city in the, in the South. And um, this is a picture of TCI, Tennessee Coal and Iron, was the largest employer in Birmingham out in Inslee uh, when it was uh, founded and, and, and built up. Uh, TCI, actually, I, I should say that my grandfather worked for TCI. I bet many of you have some relationships uh, with TCI uh, and Inslee and U.S. Steel and all that. Um, so, uh, you know, TCI was the city's largest employer. It would have been uh, in the early part of the 20th century like what UAB is today. You know the largest employer, the, the sort of economic powerhouse. And uh, by 1907, it ran into some trouble. Uh, it was financially uh, wobbly, to say the least. And there was a threat that it would actually collapse. And if it had collapsed, honestly, the whole city probably would have collapsed with it. Um, and uh, it was the largest co the competitor, U.S. Steel. And so along came this very handsome fellow, J.P. Morgan. Uh, and uh, the, as you know, J.P. Morgan was U.S. Steel. And, and he was, he was, he said, well, I will buy TCI. And uh, he was able to convince the uh, then trust busting president, Theodore Roosevelt, to let him do it. And um, so he did. And TCI, the largest employer, the largest landowner in Jefferson County, uh, became uh, part of U.S. Steel Corporation. The good thing about that is it stabilized the city. It meant that we had, uh, we were not going to collapse. It brought some investment beyond, behind it. But the downside of it, all of a sudden the largest employer, the most powerful economic engine in Birmingham wasn't based here. It was, we essentially became a colony of Pittsburgh at that point. And uh, there was good that goes with that because of the stability and everything that it brought. But it meant that we were not locally as driven by local uh, business decisions. So that's an impactful thing. Secondly, obviously this was a city that had a lot of labor that came here. Uh, people that worked in mines and worked in um, uh, the steel mills and, and a lot of the factories. And so you had a lot of management and labor tension, uh, in, which was not uh, as, as uh, evident in a lot of southern cities you know, at that time because they were not really heavily industrial like ours. And so uh, Birmingham, uh, you had several minor strikes in the 1890s and the 1908, 1924, that you know really you know pitted you know management and business versus labor, and, uh, and it's interesting even today and sort of back before heads forward, haven't we had a sort of recent you know um, labor uh, focus on us as a community about you know labor unionization? You know, so still, um, it's not something that's new for us. Um, 1908 is the one I want to focus on because this minor strike uh, was a huge one, 
And uh, some interesting things about it, this minor strike was not just, uh, it was unique because um, the, the number of African-American miners and white miners kind of joined together. Uh, and um, they, they, uh, stroke, uh, they, did, they, they did the strike together, they actually created tent cities because they couldn't live in the company housing anymore if they were on strike, so they, they kind of lived together. They, they created a kind of integration uh, because of this. And um, unfortunately, that was one of the reasons why ultimately the governor was convinced to bring in the state militia to crush the, the strike. Uh, because they called it a health crisis, a public health problem. Uh, and that was ultimately the excuse that was used to break up the strike at this time. And so this is, again, all something that's sort of, I think, part of our DNA. And then the last thing uh, in this era was the fact that, you know, Birmingham was actually a lot of different cities. In 1900, you know, Birmingham was the core city of about 45,000, but then you had all these little towns like Inslee, Avondale, Woodlawn, all these neighborhoods that we know of Birmingham, they were their own cities with their own city halls and all that. Um, and there was always this tension between the sort of progressive element and then the company towns uh, that control things, should we come together or not? And at this point, uh, there was a movement that was successful ultimately by 1910 to incorporate and, and annex a lot of the, those neighborhoods, those cities, into one city of Birmingham. And it actually was uh, hard fought, there were you know, lawsuits about it, all of this. Uh, that, uh, but ultimately, uh, it, it all sort of prevailed so that m most of those major neighborhoods, North Birmingham, all we think of really as Greater Birmingham became part of Birmingham at that time. But what that meant was we went from being the, the 14th largest city in the South in 1900 to the third largest city in the South by 1910 because all of a sudden we brought everybody together and we were clearly one of the you know, metropolitan powerhouses. We were the magic city because of how quickly we had, had grown. And so all of that happened you know, sort of as we closed out the upstart era. So I wanted to just sort of throw some things out about what do we kind of learn about us from all of this that happened. Well, we gained this sense that we should be great. I think there was always this sense that you know, Birmingham is something special. It should, it should be this great thing. Um, we had this tendency for fracturing over unity. Uh, that's really been in our DNA from the very beginning. You know, we control this, I control this, I control this, and trying to coming together is harder than, uh, than not. But we are resilient. We have seen a lot in this era, particularly a lot of the ups and downs, and we have some resilience. We also see that race is, is an issue from the beginning for us, as it is across the South and across the country. But you know, we, it, it becomes a particularly powerful thing, not only culturally, but in business, too, uh, in terms of labor, uh, and, and management issues. And then we become sensitive to outside economic control because of the U.S. deal thing. So I want to jump into the next era and cover a lot of ground very quickly um, about this, what I call the maturing era. Well, the city survived, the city grew. We went from this town of low rise buildings to begin to see skyscrapers going up um, in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, we had the tallest building in the South for a while. We have all this. Um, uh, great um, investment happening in our city, but it, you know, prior to this, the city was kind of a wild west town, and uh, there were a lot of progressives trying to clean it up. And this is a picture of George Ward, who was one of the business leaders that became a mayor, became a political leader, 
and um, he was really inspired by the City Beautiful movement, and he wanted to make the city a, a good place to live, not just a place to, to work or to make money, but you know, bring quality of life to the city, and he was part of that. And so you began to see um, the city really um, in, uh, grow around quality of life as well, you know, planning. Uh, there was actually a plan by Warren Manning done in uh, 1918 that um, uh, was, it's been reissued recently by the Berean Historical Society, um, and it's, it's worth reading because there's this great plan laid out for the Birmingham district and certain things that they could have done. They could have built some canals and other kinds of things that they thought would help connect the city up more uh, and uh, the whole district. Uh, but one statement right at the beginning that really jumped out at me, uh, Warren Manning, this person who's not from here and was studying the city and putting the plan together, said, you know, if the business interests of the city and the city government and the county would figure out how to work together, they would really boom. Well, does that sound familiar? Yeah. So, um, but the city did continue to grow despite that. A lot of the city that we physically know today is what sort of came around of this era. Um, obviously, the Grand Palace of, of Movies, the Alabama Theater, was built in 1927. Uh, the Pazitz Building there was the largest department store south of the Ohio River when it was built. 74 departments in the department building. Um, obviously, this was a city that had people in it that could spend money. It was uh, a place that was growing, um, and you had a lot, a lot of um, investment being made. But we still had our, our uh, major problem. Uh, around the fact that we, in this era, uh, got even uh, tougher on our separation and segregation. This was where a lot of practices became law. Uh, you started to see actually laws being written that said uh, African Americans can only um, uh, ride in the back of the trolley and things like that. It was things like that were formalized. And the zoning map of 1926 actually formalized a lot of this. You think of zoning as being about uses. Well, at this time, it was about uses, but there was also some other things going on in zoning. You can't really read this, so I'm going to zone in on Avondale. This is Avondale. Y'all many know Avondale. You may see Avondale Park there. If you see the hash lines, those were the blocks and the places where Negroes could live. And they specifically called it out. So this is where black people can live, and this is where white people could live in the zoning law. And uh, Birmingham was not alone in doing this practice, and it got... Uh, um, support struck down, thankfully, but it was definitely, we, 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 we may not have been the only ones doing it, but we kind of perfected it. We were, we were kind of looked at as we really kind of knew what we were doing with, with that kind of separation. Um, a lot of social issues that were uh, really people, individuals stepped up to address. People like Carrie Tuggle, who was a, a woman that was um, uh, started a, a, an orphanage for African American boys in a school she had many people like Louis Pazitz invest in her and build that school and that orphanage and, um, and uh, she made an impact on helping to serve those in need. Brother Brian, you may recognize Brother Brian there. Uh, he was, if you know Brother Brian, he was a Presbyterian minister that was all about um, uh, giving to the poor. He would take the coat off his back for somebody if they needed it. And he was also a white voice that said, you know, we've got a problem here with our, with the way we treat people that aren't, don't look like me, you know. Uh, he was starting to say those things. But, you know, business jumped in this too. This is Joseph, John Joseph Egan, who is one of the founders of ASIPCO, American Cast Iron Pipe. Um, he was a devout Christian Presbyterian who um, uh, actually said, you know, I, um, I believe out of my Christian calling that I need to run my business in a way that is just. And he uh, created a lot of schools, 
dental uh, clinics, uh, medical uh, facilities for his, uh, his people. Um, in, in a way that, and the business result of this was he attracted more stable employment. People who had families and all that, that would, would want to work for a CIFCO. And after that, U.S. Steel and everybody else copied it because they realized, oh, we'll get a better quality workforce if we did that, do those kinds of things. So people were doing things in our city to really help. But we still, because of our, our segregation, we were, we were really a tale of two cities. We were two Birmingham. Um, and uh, we were a white Birmingham, and then we were an African-American Birmingham. And the African-American community created an incredibly robust uh, um, uh, set of institutions, uh, organizations uh, that would uh, help themselves out. Um, also, uh, culturally, uh, they created their own business leaders like A.G. Gaston and, and, and music like Fess Watley, who was a teacher at Parker High School, which trained a lot of people in how to play jazz music, which was sort of early in that age. Erskine Hawkins, who went on to play with Glenn Miller. I mean, Birmingham sent out a lot of talent, uh, especially from the African-American community, into what would really become American music, you know, jazz and, and, and jazz, what came after jazz. So, um, uh, but they were very much, it was very much a separate world. Um, and until we get to the Great Depression, and the Great Depression hits, and Birmingham uh, goes from one of the greatest, most economically strong cities in, in the southeast to uh, declare by President Roosevelt the hardest hit city in the country. Uh, over uh, 20%, I'm sorry, 40% of the people in Birmingham during the, the Great Depression were on some kind of government help uh, because the mines, everybody laid off a bunch of people and then a bunch of people came from the country because their uh, farms were getting foreclosed on and they came to Birmingham to look for work. And all of a sudden you had this huge mass of unemployed people and we were uh, really in trouble, which led to uh, a lot of government money, like the WPA coming in here and, and building parks, building housing, uh, doing things like even uh, putting Vulcan, who had uh, been at the state fairgrounds, up on the mountain. Uh, it was the Kiwanis Club and the WPA kind of got together and created a, a place of prominence uh, for Vulcan. And you know, the Roosevelt's visited a good bit. Eleanor Roosevelt speaking out of Birmingham Southern uh, on one of her visits during the Great Depression. Uh, but she was also, she was one that, you know, because of the way they were trying to help Birmingham from the federal government. But uh, they were also, um, uh, she would also call out the problems of race that, that we had. Uh, so as we sort of conclude this maturing era, and this is where we'll, where we'll sort of stop today, um, up through about 1945. You know, we learned economic diversification is a good idea. You know, we can't have all our eggs in one economic basket uh, in the iron and steel industry. That's a bad thing for us. Uh, we also had the list, we'll take your federal money, but not your interference. You know, I mean, they didn't really love Eleanor Roosevelt coming around saying some of the things she said, but we sure will take your money. You know, and so that's, that was something that you sort of saw. But then a shaken confidence. You know, we were this incredible magic city uh, that all of a sudden became the hardest hit city in the country. And you have to kind of get, get your mind around that, you know, that, that what that does to you. When, you, when you're that kind of community that everything's going awesome, you think you're the best, you're the, and then all of a sudden uh, you're kind of hitting rock bottom. So these are the things up through 1945 in our history that I want us to be thinking about and praying about. Uh, and I get it that many people in this uh, church know a lot of Birmingham history 
and heck, you may disagree with me about some of my assessments and some of these things, and that's great. I'd love to talk about that. Uh, I don't think I've said anything that are that it is not, um, you know, you know, pretty clear when you kind of look through, you know, history uh, of the city. But um, I want us to be thinking about and praying these things, and then what? Thinking about our time today, uh, and what when we're, you know, in our uh, in our jobs and in our communities and our church, you know, does any of this start to feel familiar? Like, you know, there's a, this isn't just like right now. There, there's, there's something that sort of come all the way from, from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that's still a part of who we are as we're thinking about who we can become and go forward. So um, next week we will jump more into um, the sort of era of change, uh, significant, significant change that comes uh, for us and rocks us in many ways and then into the, the modern era and, and talk about even some of the, this is where my economic development side comes. I didn't say that I'm an, eco, I, I work in economic development here in the city. And so uh, I'll, I'll start to get a little wonky with some of the stats, which will be kind of, for me, fun. What are we really, what are we doing uh, with jobs? What are we doing economically and all that stuff? You know, uh, so that's where we'll go with that. But um, our time is up. And so I'm going to just go ahead and close this in prayer and Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the place and time in which you have put us. Uh, and we know that you have put us here uh, for a reason. And we pray that uh, as the Advent continues to live out its heart for the city as a, as a, as a community of faith that uh, has you at the forefront of our calling and our mission, uh, Lord, that you would help us to prayerfully consider, um, first of all, the lessons that we'll learn from Nehemiah, but prayerfully consider how uh, we know our place, what we know of it, and how uh, we can sense um, that we can be a part of its, um, its growth and its uh, redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.